There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Welcome to The Broad Experience, the show about women, the workplace, and success. I'm Ashley Miltite. This time, part two of our show on negotiation. I was worried that if I am negotiating on behalf of myself, I will be viewed as pushy or aggressive, or it will somehow make me less likable. A lot of you will know exactly what she's talking about. Coming up. In the last show, you met negotiation trainer Natalie Reynolds. I loved her practical advice and positive attitude. But I always knew to do a show on this, I wanted to talk to a regular person, not just a professional negotiator. I wanted to talk to someone like me, someone who's often found negotiation pretty excruciating, but was keen to get better at it. Netta Freyha is just that person. She's a medical doctor. She works near Baltimore. After finishing her training, she worked in academic medicine for almost eight years, so seeing patients, but also teaching and doing quite a bit of administration as well. Then last year, at age 40, she underwent a big career change. Like the women in my recent show on women in medicine, Netta felt burnt out. She wanted a change of pace. Today, she works one day a week doing primary care, and the other days, she's the editor of a continuing education podcast for physicians. It was a big deal to switch things up that much, but Netta says... It's just been a very positive life change in so many ways. She loves the work, and we'll come back to her negotiation for that job in a bit. But I wanted to start by going back to her first job offer as a young doctor, She was applying for a role at the same institution where she'd done her training. So with that very first job, they offer you the job, a package. Did you just say great thank you or did you attempt to negotiate that? So I did, much to my own dismay, not long afterwards and many years afterwards, I did just say great thank you when it comes to the salary. And part of the reason for that is that the one of the people who would be my bosses or rather one person who was going to be one of my bosses in this new arrangement told me that if I made any more than that starting salary, I would be making more than some of her more senior people whom I knew and loved and respected as a trainee. So I thought to myself, well, I can't make more than they do because they are my role models. And so that was a huge reason why right off the bat, I never even thought to negotiate the salary or any of the benefits. I I truly just accepted it. Another reason she didn't negotiate? As someone finishing up her residency and taking her first official job, the salary was a huge jump from what she had been on. And I think it's very easy to say, oh my gosh, well, this is so much more than I've made as a resident, which is really much, much less. 
And it's easy to say, oh, well, who am I to complain about this? But now what you say you you later regretted it and not long afterwards regretted not negotiating. Now, why did you do you because I was going to ask you, do you think that that per the person who said, if you if you get more, you'll be getting more than your teachers, basically? I mean, do you think she was dissembling a little bit? I mean, why did you regret it? Because I I've discovered that I was behind the eight ball from the very beginning. And now when I give advice to medical students and residents coming up behind me, I always tell them that that first salary you make out of training serves as the foundation for every salary you'll make afterwards. And so when I started off, what I learned later to be actually lower than many of my peers I had to work so much harder to try to make up that ground. And that led to, for me, what felt like uncomfortable negotiations later to ultimately earn what my peers were making. So even though she had told you that, you know, that you were already earning the top rate, I mean, but do you think she was lying or or not? Because if I were you, I think I would have done exactly what you did. I would have thought, well, I can't possibly earn more than them. Absolutely. And, you know, I think that's another part of the problem was also, well, I shouldn't say that. I wouldn't say part of the problem. But um, part of the situation, too, is that I was staying where I had trained. And I think there's a certain psyche where when you become faculty at the institution where you went to school, where you did all your training, you're still in that people-pleasing mode. A lot of others around you, especially more senior people, may still see you as very junior, even though you're an official attending physician. And so I think I, I felt that sense of deference to everyone around me. All these years later, I truly don't think that she was lying. I think at the time, I probably was making something comparable to a few people I knew and respected. But they were being savvy in their careers and over time negotiated fantastic raises for themselves. And these things are not really public. We don't talk about these things. So then years later, I learned that these same people who had served as the benchmark for my starting salary were hustling and and earning more of an income for themselves through careful and thoughtful negotiations by proving their worth within the organization. And I was just kind of floating along, realizing that all of a sudden I'm really behind. That thing of realizing what someone else earns, someone on the same level as you, it was a big motivator for me too. Like Neda, I was floating along, assuming everything was fair, or rather, it didn't even occur to me that someone in the same job would be getting paid more. Finding out they were shocked me out of my complacency, and it had me making calls to ask to have my pay adjusted, which it was. And after that first incident, I was much more aware of that need to keep on top of what others were earning. In the last show, you heard Natalie talk about how important it is for us to do our research before a negotiation, to find out how much others in the same job, or the job we want, are getting paid. I asked Neda if she'd embarked on this prior to job discussions later in her career. What did she say? In some cases, when the person was very close to me and a close friend, I did outright ask, um, and I put it in the context of, you know, I worry that I am, I'm not earning the same as my peers. Um, would you mind giving me just a range 
of, you know, what where you are. And usually my close friends would tell me sort of point blank what their salaries were. I also worked uh, in a state system where all the state salaries were available online. And even though those may not be 100 percent accurate and there are other, you know, kind of there's other math that's not accounted for in that, there is a very searchable database where you can look people up and find out what they're making. And I felt really guilty doing that. I felt sort of shady and like I was being just kind of a a sneaky person trying to figure out what others were making. But then when you look and you see that people in your own group, in your own division, in your own practice are earning considerably more than you without a clear reason why. So sometimes there's rank. So yes, of course, a full professor is very different from someone starting off as an assistant professor. But there are other times that really you're doing the same work. And so it, it was it provided me with a lot of very helpful data, and it it made me feel a little bit better about doing that kind of research. I don't think we should feel bad looking up other people's salaries, but it can certainly be awkward to ask people face-to-face. I like the idea of asking people for a range. So after that first experience where Netta didn't negotiate, she was determined to try later on. Sometimes she backed down too quickly. Even though she was armed with information after her research, the process still wasn't easy for her. I think in terms of how it feels, I have always wanted very much to be liked by everybody around me. And I think that it has actually served me well in some contexts. I am viewed as a good employee. I am a good worker. I am a good colleague. And I was worried that if I am negotiating on behalf of myself, I will be viewed as pushy or aggressive, or it will somehow make me less likable. It will diminish their opinion of me. They would think I was demanding too much or that I was being too bold. And so that left me with a really queasy feeling throughout the entire process. And it was kind of a constant nausea, like it never really left until the whole process was over. That desire to be liked, it's one of the biggest things that can trip women up in a negotiation. And we didn't really address it in the last show. Many of us are still raised to be people pleasers, to put others' interests before our own, and to be happy with what we've got. And that can make negotiating feel somehow wrong. But as Natalie said in the last show, if we can just concentrate on our worth, on what we bring to the company or what we can bring to the new job, it helps to concentrate the mind. Still, let's not gloss over the fact that the likability factor plays a big part in a lot of women's dealings at work, even if we don't want it to. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. And talking of likability, the truth is other people, men and women, expect us to be likable. A couple of years ago, I interviewed Sarah Lasheva. 
She's the co-author of two well-known books on negotiation, Women Don't Ask and Ask For It. The tape isn't great quality, so I'm not going to include a snippet here. But in short, she says men can be direct and businesslike in a negotiation, and that's fine. But for women, that's harder. She says women need to play up their likability during a negotiation to get good results. I talked about this with Natalie last time, and she wasn't so sure that was necessary. But for those of you who are interested, I'll point you to more reading on this at the end of the show. Now, Neda will admit she's not that direct in the first place, and she does get nervous. She's noticed her voice has a slight tremor when she negotiates. I know that if I move my hands, I can see that they're trembling a little bit. So I've learned to sort of keep my hands folded and in my lap so that I don't reveal that tell. Do you remember if you use uh, the conditional tense like I would or, or if we, those, those kinds of things to sort of soften things up? In, in verbal, in speech, yes. So in the times that it's become a conversation, uh, I absolutely would do the conditional kind of softening of my message um, with the words that I would choose and even with the tone of my voice. I think in writing, it's a little bit easier to be more declarative and sort of um, state things in a very factual way because you have the benefit of being able to go back and revise and revise. And instead of saying I would, you say I will or I can. Um, so I usually find – and actually maybe that's a helpful thing for, for me in the future or for anyone else is to practice writing it out ahead of time and see how you edit it to make it sound simpler and clearer and more declarative and then use some of that language language, um, because you have the benefit of going through it a few times when it's written in front of you. Which actually strikes me as a really good idea. Any negotiation expert, including Natalie Reynolds, will tell you you have to practice ahead of time to quell some of those nerves and prepare for the unexpected. Writing seems like a great way for some of us to work through the phrasing we're going to use. And it's true, some negotiations do take place over email, and you do have more of a chance to perfect your language that way. So when Netta did start negotiating for raises, how did it feel? Oh, awful. It felt awful because I f- it, it already feels uncomfortable to ask for something more. Um, I think that's that it was already a situation that left me feeling a little bit queasy even before, the, you know, the return offer came. And then when the return offer comes and essentially says, no, what you're asking for is way off, even if that's not what they actually mean, even if even if to them they're just sort of doing the dance, uh, it makes you feel. It made me feel like uh, I had been way off in assessing my own worth, and that the organization didn't value me as much as I thought I should be valued. It was a it was a pretty terrible feeling, and then it also feels like what you try to do with the negotiation just didn't work out. And it is a dance, of course. They are testing you. You just have to remember to stay calm and not back down. There's a lot more on how to do that in the last show. So her current job, the one she just landed last year, it was something Neda really wanted. She loved the project. She admired the people. But... I was bringing with me a lot of baggage from my previous non-negotiations. So I remembered very clearly the times in the past that I had not advocated for myself and the times that I had not negotiated for myself. And 
I, I think I felt a little bit sore from that, which is something I guess to be mindful of. You know, not to walk into a negotiation angry about past slights because your you know your current uh, employers don't know anything about that, and nor should they. Um, but I knew that I was kind of carrying that baggage with me, and I wanted also to sort of prove to myself that I could stand my ground or at least advocate for myself. And so there was just, you know, a little bit of back and forth. And in the end, I got very close to what I ultimately asked for. I think what was so uncomfortable for me during the most recent situation was I really, really liked the people that I was working with. I really wanted this deal to work out. I very much felt invested in it emotionally. And, you know, sort of thinking of the idea of wanting to be liked constantly, I really struggled with, well, what if this makes them like me less at this very important juncture? But her quiet persistence didn't hurt their opinion of her. She had time to reflect on it later. As long as the negotiation is based on evidence and data and a collaborative sense of what you bring to the table and the ways that you can make your team, your boss, your company, your organization better with your particular skills, I think that you you have a real leg to stand on. And that's what I kept trying to remind myself, even when I felt that kind of constant churning of nausea that I was actually requesting something um, after so many years of, of not doing so, really. She felt she'd finally pulled it off, a successful negotiation. When you put all things together, it was a huge win-win. I didn't quite get everything that I asked for, but I felt like what I did get was extremely reasonable and appropriate and good. It's interesting. It sounds like you've learned everything you've learned and you've become quite a strong advocate for negotiation is through experience, not necessarily or, or did somebody sit you down one day and say, look, Netta, you need to, you know, you need to be more pushy, you need to negotiate better? Or was it more from that realization that people around you were being paid more and then your sort of righteous indignation because of that? It's the latter. It really is the latter. It's out of a, a personal interest from the different experiences that I've had. Uh, and I've also learned that even the most extraordinary mentors and sponsors and role models, we may be very fortunate and they may advocate for us in a number of ways for you know promotions or for opportunities that can help us. Um, but I really don't know of anyone who has been sort of sat down in front of their boss and been told, you're not making enough. We need to advocate for a higher salary for you. That just doesn't happen. And I think part of it is that we we don't talk about it very much. Sometimes our managers may not even really know how much we're making, depending on the organization we're working for. And so I think for all of us, if we want to see that kind of growth in our careers and in specifically how we are compensated for our work. No one is going to hand that raise to us on a silver platter. We we will always have to be the ones aware of the situation, asking for that opportunity, negotiating on behalf of ourselves. Other people are are not doing that for us. And I know that there's going to be a contingent of of listeners who think um, and, you know, and plenty of people out there who think, look, women, well, nobody, I suppose, should have to negotiate. Companies, organizations should just pay us what we're worth. 
I think that sounds wonderful. And I think that there are industries and there are companies that are doing great work in that area. And I'm so excited for anybody who gets to work for an organization like that. Um, I, and, I, and I don't always think that it's malice or malintent if a person is actually underpaid for what they're worth. I think sometimes it's lack of knowledge. It's benign cluelessness. But I think there are many instances when perhaps a person is not getting paid what they're worth, and it's really up to that person to just be aware of that situation. And then they can decide for themselves how comfortable they feel advocating and negotiating on their own behalf. And also, I I feel really strongly about this. I think negotiation is a human skill that comes in handy in so many different areas, not just this one area of asking for salary. And we should all be interested in improving that, me, me included. I agree with you completely. It is sort of like a social skill or a business skill that, again, not all of us are taught. And I, I think research has shown that that women are better at negotiating on behalf of someone else. So if, you know, you and I were in a room together and you were to tell me, Netta, you need to advocate and negotiate for a raise for Ashley, I would be able to do that much more comfortably than I would if I had to do the same thing for myself. And so maybe that's another tool that we can rely on, that let's pretend that we're talking about a third person who happens to be ourselves and see what kind of language and uh, emphasis and enthusiasm you would come up with if you were talking about yourself in the third person, if you were a friend of yours and you wanted to advocate for that person. And maybe this doesn't surprise a lot of you, this fact, and research does bear it out. After all, women get the message early on that we're meant to look out for others. So when it comes to negotiating for someone else? When we negotiate for them, it, does, it doesn't feel selfish. It feels like a natural extension of what we do all the time, all day long. That word selfish. It goes to the crux of what we've talked about on and off over the years on this show, that so many women feel we don't deserve things, including money. My take on this is that we should work on overcoming those feelings. But some say if asking for money feels selfish to you, use that feeling in a negotiation by flipping it around. A few years ago, I interviewed a giant of negotiation training in the US. Her name is Margaret Neal or Maggie Neal. She teaches at Stanford. And she talked about this advice she gives women. She says, if you're someone who finds it hard to ask for money for yourself, go into that negotiation thinking of the other people in your life. Go in solid in the knowledge that money is going to help others. Think about them when you ask. Don't talk about them because a negotiation should always focus on the work. But have them in your mind as a motivator. And I think that's fine if you have a family to support. If you're single... Maybe not so much. But apparently, it's a psychological trick that works well for women who need to focus on others to ask for something for themselves. For the negotiation geeks among you, I'm going to post a bunch of links under this episode at thebroadexperience.com. I'll link you to some of Maggie Neal's videos on negotiation. I will link you to books and chapters of books that could help you and to some stories I've done on this topic in the past. Thanks to Netta Freyher for being my guest on this show and opening up about her negotiation experiences. I'd love to know what you think of these two shows and whether they've been helpful. You can email me at ashley at thebroadexperience.com or tweet me or post on the show's Facebook page. Thanks, as ever, to those of you who support this one-woman show. 
To join them with any level of support, hit up the support tab at thebroadexperience.com. I'm Ashley Nontite. Thanks for listening. See you next time.